for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secrets of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I could do all things through the Lord Jesus who strengthens me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Dennis, thank you. Friends, good morning. Welcome. Come on, talk to me. Hello, good morning. Hey, I'm so glad that you're here. This was a hard week to be a human being, wasn't it? They kind of all are these days, it feels like. Do you agree? Difficult. Afghanistan, Haiti, COVID, school. Lots of things going wrong in the world. You got things with your family, things with your friends. You get into church and kind of your soul, the toll on your soul begins to catch up. Which is why we just need to be in God's presence this morning. We need to hear from the Lord this morning. We need to be given a word from another world so that we have a clue what on earth is going on and how can we begin to navigate this world. So I don't know if you're coming in and you're feeling, you're probably in the minority, light and joyful. Or if you're coming in feeling discouraged and tired. I don't know if you're coming in and you're among friends or maybe you are among total strangers or people that you literally just met at the meet and greet time. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe or maybe you completely and vehemently disagree with us. I want to say to each and every one of you, it's not a mistake that you're here. In the name of Jesus Christ, welcome. This is going to be a nice time together. We're going to reflect on the scriptures. And best of all, we're going to receive Holy Communion and worship and pray together. This is going to be nice. So Dennis just read from Philippians chapter 4. And Philippians 4.13 perhaps rivals Jeremiah uh, 29.11 in the verses quoted out of context hall of fame. Those two are duking it out. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Um, This verse, Philippians 4.13, the last of the passage, is a favorite among uh, people who are on the homecoming court at private Christian schools when they have to pick their favorite Bible verse. It's a favorite among those who are trying to score really well on the ACTs and those who are, you know, trying to learn how to dunk. My goal as a sophomore in high school was to play basketball in college, and I was really bad, but I held on to Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13 is one of those verses that we kind of like hold on to to help us scale the face of Achievement Mountain. (laughs) But the irony of the verse is it's it's really not at all what Paul is getting at. Paul is not talking about how to like conquer the, 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 the mountain peaks of life. He's really trying to figure out how to be okay in the valleys of life when things are not okay. 
We tend to take this verse as a sign of favor of, you know, for, for our ambitious projects and endeavors like dunking and getting into college and becoming a millionaire. But this is just not what Paul was getting on about. He said in verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in all situations. Here's a sample of what he's been through. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked, once uh, left in the open sea, uh, constantly on the move, in danger in rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from Jews, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked and beside all of that, worrying about all of you, he says to the people in his churches. Paul's talking about being content in all situations, and these are the extreme kind of situations that the apostle has been through. Now, the 1984 version of the the NIV says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things, which has this kind of open-ended association with it. And so you can apply it to desiring to dunk or get into the college of choice or to, you know, become a millionaire by the time you're 30. But the updated version of the NIV in 2016 translates it a a little more accurately. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. Pointing back to the verses that he's just, he's just written to them. He didn't know they were verses. He was just writing them a letter. I can do all this. I can be content no matter the circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. It's the secret of being content. To be content is to be free from care because of satisfaction with what one already has. Okay, hear it again. To be content is to be free from care because of satisfaction with what one already has, with what is already one's own. Paul says in shipwreck and in lashings, in getting stoned and being hunted by other people, I've learned the secret of being content. I can be satisfied even when I lack because of what I already have. It's astounding. The challenge of discontentment comes from a couple of places. One, I think that it is a somewhat unique American phenomenon. Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, writing in the 1700s, visited, he was a Frenchman visiting uh, the, the colonies, said this about Americans. He said, the American lives in a land of wonders. Everything around him is in constant movement. Every movement seems in advance. Consequently, in his mind, the idea of newness is closely linked with that of improvement. New equals an improvement. Old equals regression. So if you have old things, if you're not constantly advancing, which means getting new stuff, you are regressing. That's somewhat unique to the American ethos. But I think more universally, humans desire stuff they don't have. It goes at least as far back as Exodus chapter 20 when God gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. This is the Tenth Commandment. How amazing that this made the list. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, 
or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't, don't covet, desire their house, their spouse, their stuff, their financial mobility. Don't covet. And it doesn't offer further explanation. Uh, the, the author of First John talked about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, like our sinful cravings, and the pride of life. It's that covetousness, which is kind of the opposite of contentment, that tends to get us in trouble. The second reason this, uh, we, where this challenge of discontentment comes from. And I think the third reason we struggle with discontent is the lack of a divine center. This lack of, you know, if Paul's able to be content because he's aware of what he has, lacking awareness about what we have in Christ, we are discontent and we wrestle and we struggle. Paul is content with what he lacks because of what he has in Christ. Do we have any idea what that is for us? If I were to ask you who struggles with anxiety, probably nearly every hand in the room would go up. And discontentment is one of the chief sources of our anxiety. Discontentment or trying to compare ourselves to other people is one of the chief things that causes us to worry. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will or to Desire One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. We talked about a few weeks ago looking at earlier in, in chapter 4 of Philippians that to be anxious is to be pulled in other directions. Do you remember that? To be pulled in opposing directions or pe- to be distracted. And say that that sense of being distracted is like we're willing other things. And so willing and desiring competing things, are, our hearts have rival allegiances. Our hearts are not pure in the sense that Kierkegaard is using it here. We desire multiple things. I want to completely trust my life to God, and I want to have complete control over my life. I want to be all in on the kingdom of God, and I want everyone to like me in the process. It's like one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite movies, Wayne's World. Led Zeppelin didn't try to write tunes everybody liked. They left that to the Bee Gees. (laughs) Led Zeppelin is to the kingdom of God as the Bee Gees are. Okay. (laughs) Jesus talked in the parable of the sower in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about the farmer who goes out to, to scatter seed. It's, it's like God liberally sharing the word with, with people. And some of the seed lands among the thorns. And the text says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things chokes out the word. Did you notice that as we were praying it? Uh, we, we are determined to withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. We see stuff that we want. There's so many shiny objects. Vehicles, houses, spouses, stuff. We see things that look desirable to us. It's like Eve in Genesis chapter 3. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food. And so she took some and she ate some and she gave some to her husband who was with her. We get pulled in opposing directions, and it keeps us for keep, from keeping our eyes on the one thing that's needful. Jesus said in Matthew 6, in a similar kind of conversation, he said, but you seek first the kingdom of God 
Seek first the reign of God and his righteousness, and all that stuff you're worrying about will be added to you as well. Now, discontentment is not just a threat to our psychological well-being, though it is. It could actually cost us our very life or our soul. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We should have that tattooed on our credit card hand. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you want purity of heart, if you want a freedom from anxiety, if you want a kind of emotional buoyancy to endure the waves and the storms of life, we have to deal with our restless sense of discontent. Uh, in his classic book, uh, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster takes on our bent toward material discontentment and the spiritual and emotional and relational maladies that follow with the practice of Christian simplicity. Christian simplicity is like the antidote to our discontent. Foster says that simplicity is both an inner reality of the heart and it's manifested with external realities in our life. It's an inner reality of our heart and that Kierkegaard sense of desiring one thing, keeping it simple, that's manifested in our lives. And the desire for and the practice of Christian simplicity confronts our desire for security and for competition with other people, our sense of measuring up. It confronts our desire and our practice of accumulating stuff and it ultimately confronts our sense of discontent. And we need to be confronted in this way. This is what Foster said. He said, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence, this means the lust for wealth and opulence, uh, in contemporary society is itself psychotic. It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they're worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. And it's time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. He says, until we see how unabashed our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves, nor will we desire Christian simplicity. You guys use the word mammon in everyday speech, right? Okay. Mammon is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew's gospel when he says you cannot serve God and money. Money is the mammon. It's materialism. And Jesus likened it unto a rival God. Uh, and you need to choose to which you're going to pledge your allegiance. 
Uh, mammon is, is money, it's materialism, and he says it's especially hard for those with a lot of access to mammon, to money, to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think it's important to know this is not just those of us who are in the top 1%. This is all of us. Uh, there's, a, there's a website, I can't remember for the life of me the name of it. I'll, I'll perhaps send it out this week. But I did a little study this week. If you are a married couple who earns $45,000 a year and you have two children, okay? Married couple, two people, $45,000 a year, two little people. And you earn, yeah, $45,000 a year. You are richer than 87.9% of the human race. If you earn $45,000 a year, married with two kids, you're richer than almost 90% of the world. We all have to directly and aggressively confront the reign of mammon, of materialism in our lives. And this is why simplicity matters. But Foster says that few of us ever actively decide to pursue simplicity, and we never really entertain a simple life. Says the majority of Christians have never seriously wrestled with the problems of simplicity, conveniently ignoring Jesus' many words on the subject. Well, the reason is simple. This discipline directly challenges our vested interests in an affluent lifestyle. But those who take the biblical teaching on simplicity seriously are faced with severe temptations toward legalism. Now you immediately see the tem- you immediately see the tension. Because on the one hand, all of us in this room are wealthier than the majority of the world, or the overwhelming majority of the world. And so there's a sense of guilt there. Well, then we must do what Jesus said to one guy, which is to sell literally everything we have and give it to the poor. It immediately introduces this conversation about legalism. Are you doing enough to measure up? Foster continues. He said, the central point for the discipline of simplicity, it's not just financial simplicity, it's keeping it simple in life. The central point for the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of his kingdom first, and then everything necessary will come in its proper order. This is a good word. He said, it's impossible to overestimate the importance of Jesus' insight at this point. Nothing must come before the kingdom of God uh, to influence our desire for a simple, even the desire for a simple lifestyle. Now, I don't think that Paul was directly aspiring for simplicity as a virtue in the passage here. I think when Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in any any and every situation, I think that Paul's secret was simple adherence to the teaching of Jesus to seek the kingdom of God first. And then simplicity as a result followed. By seeking the kingdom of God, it manifested in a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. And Paul says, I can do all of this through Christ who strengthens me, seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Richard Foster said, freedom from anxiety is naturally derived from seeking first the kingdom of God. And this freedom from anxiety is characterized by three inner attitudes. These are so good. First, he said, it's an awareness that all we have is a gift. Breathe in. Now, we told ourselves to breathe, and yet we would also do it unconsciously. My six-month-old my six doesn't have 
the capacities to consciously will himself to breathe. God has made him in such a way that he just breathes that heart of his thing. God just beats. Life itself is a gift. Scripture says it's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You think you built this empire with your own two hands? No, you may tear it down with your own two hands. Life itself is a gift. When we seek first the kingdom of God, we are aware that all we have is a gift, and this promotes gratitude. Lord, you've given, we sang this morning with the, the team of volunteers and staff, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We seek first the kingdom of God. We recognize that life itself is a gift. And it, it, it evokes in us gratitude. The second inner attitude that comes from seeking first the kingdom of God is the recognition that it's God's business to care uh, for what we have, not ours. When we seek first the kingdom of God, do you remember the teaching of Jesus when he's sending out the disciples? said, don't take any clothes or shoes, extra stuff with you. I'm going to meet your needs. When you seek first the kingdom of God, there's this kind of open-handedness about the stuff that, for now, is yours. And when you seek first the kingdom of God, there's this recognition, I'm in God's hands. I was really sad this week. There's an author who I've read named Thomas McKenzie. He wrote a book called The Anglican Way, which if you want to learn anything about Anglicanism, that's a really good book. And he, on the first day of his sabbatical, he was driving his daughter from Nashville to uh, New Mexico where she is in college, and they were killed, he and his daughter, in a car wreck. And I was just astounded. We work so hard to keep ourselves secure, and yet we are not invulnerable. So what else can we do but in, to entrust ourselves into the hands of God. When we seek first the kingdom of God, we recognize it's God's gift, it's God's responsibility and business to care for what we have. And this promotes and asks of us a posture of trust. And then the final inner attitude that Foster talks about that, that is naturally evocative of seeking the kingdom of God is this readiness to share our resources with others. Because we're, we're grateful because it was given to us. We didn't make it ourselves. It's God's business to care for it, and so we're just stewards of it. Therefore, we're ready to share it with other people. Seeking the kingdom of God promotes a posture of gratitude and invites trust and promotes generosity. If we take all together the teachings of Jesus and, and, and the whole message of Scripture surrounding wealth and security and contentment, if we, if we accept the words of Jesus that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, if we can name the deceptiveness of wealth and see the danger of the worries of this life and the desire for other things that they can choke the word in us, and if we accept the need for simplicity as an antidote for our discontent, I believe it is critical for every Christian to deliberately and habitually and sacrificially and joyfully give away money. Like, like, give away money. This is one less dollar that's going to own my heart. If we understand that, like, this is a gift to be stewarded and also a danger to my heart, I want to make sure that I, I, I don't get it too close to my heart where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. 
we take seriously Jesus' words and also the gift of liberty that Jesus wants to give us, we need to take seriously our relationship with money and joyfully and sacrificially and habitually get it away from us as an act of seeking the kingdom of God. I don't like it when pastors talk about money. Sue is so mad at me right now for this. (laughs) See? I'm so sorry, Sue. I'm so sorry. You all have blessing to care for your rest your needs, children, whatever it is, okay? But I may call you out. Oh, I don't like it when pastors talk about money truthfully. Because often I feel, not saying it's true, I feel like a money sermon is going to follow a budget crisis. It's like, well, the Lord put it on my heart to suddenly start talking about money when we're in the hole. That's not what's going on here at all. Not in the least. We have more than enough, thanks be to God. That's not our conversation. But I do want to talk about our relationship with money. Well, how much should we give? Well, good news. I don't believe that the New Testament requires us to give a 10% tithe. Challenging news, I think that it's much more costly. That the invitation of Jesus is not to surrender this 10% and, oh, great, I get to keep the rest for myself. The whole hundred is on the table in open-handed surrender. The whole hundred is on the table. Because we recognize that all we have has been entrusted to us from him, 100% of this is fully available to him. I do think that 10% is a great place to start. Uh, That's been my practice from the seventh grade because I learned it from my parents. To take 10% of whatever comes in and to give it to God through the local church. And for some people, 10% may be crushing. And you may need to ease into it. And for other people, 10% may not be nearly enough. People who are wealthy, which I'm telling you, compared to the world population, is every person in this room. People who are wealthy often like control. And giving to God, I think giving to God through the local church is important because it requires this posture of humble submission and surrender. I'm not going to, you know, oversee my trust and make sure it gets, gets divvied out perfectly. I'm going to surrender it completely to the Lord. And I think that's important for all of us as a way that we begin to learn that all we have is a gift, that all we've been given is ultimately God's to care for and ours to share with other people. Now, I encourage you to have a budget. I once worked for a person many moons ago who did not believe in budgeting. I believe in budgeting. I don't think God is opposed to it. Uh, But as you're sitting down and you're working on your budget, seek first the kingdom of God. Ask the Lord, looking at all the, you know, dollars or lack of dollars perhaps in your mind that are in front of you and say, Lord, how can I most faithfully steward the resources you've given me, recognizing that all I have is a gift, that this is ultimately yours to care for, that my life and security are in your hands, And these resources have been given to me to to meet needs and to share. You look at your budget and say, ask God, how can I seek first the kingdom of God and most faithfully steward these resources? And then I'd urge you to start by naming how you're going to seek the kingdom of God by designating your giving first toward kingdom purposes. I think that should include the local church. I I think we should be mindful of the poor I think we should be mindful of of places in the world where the gospel has not yet come, under-evangelized nations. Ask the Lord, how can I steward what you've entrusted to me for the sake of the kingdom? I think this is one 
critical external practice to, to match and to help create an inward reality of simplicity. I'm going to really quickly give you 10 more that Richard Foster passed on. And you're going to want to hear these, so you're going to like listen to the sermon later, and I'll link them when I send out the email tomorrow afternoon. Foster gives 10 more practices for moving into greater simplicity. Rapid fire, are you ready? Okay, first, he says, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. So think about, what do I need? How do I use it? Buy things for their usefulness, not for how awesome it makes you look. Two, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Oh, I didn't like this one. Because I immediately thought of coffee and I thought of social media. Now remember, again, we don't want to move into legalism. But what are those, what are those things that have a hold on you? That you really don't need, you really want, but you don't really need that may be interfering in your life in one way or another. Reject anything that's producing an addiction in you. Third, develop a habit of giving things away. Fourth, and then he uses a couple big words here. Fourth, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. You don't have to buy it just because it's new. Like the other thing works. Don't be a sucker of advertising and marketing. I, oh, what did I lose the other day? I can't remember for the life of me. I don't remember. I lost something, and I was walking around talking about, I can't for the life of me find this thing. And I had an Instagram ad for that thing. It's like, they're listening. I'm being propagandized. Refuse to be propagandized. Five, learn to enjoy things without owning them. So maybe they won't own you. Six, Develop an appreciation for creation, what no one can own. Seven, look with skepticism on all buy now, pay later schemes. This is an old book. We don't hear that language quite as much. But be careful about things that are going to cause you to incur debt that, you, that is inappropriate, that you really shouldn't take on just because you really want it right now. You could be patient. Keep it simple. Number eight, and this is coming from a different angle about simplicity, he says, obey Jesus' instructions about plain, honest speech. When, you're gonna say you're gonna, when you say you're going to do something, do it. Say yes, say no, keep your word, keep it simple. Number nine, reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. Now, there's some blissful ignorance for many of us about many of the goods that we, we enjoy on a daily basis. And were we to track the supply chain, would we find that our consumption is contributing to someone else's oppression? Oh, man. Reject anything uh, that it breeds the oppression of others. Help us, Lord. And number 10, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Who lives like this? Truly, do you know anyone who lives like this? Who lives simply? Who just has a sense of contentment, whether they have a lot or a little? There's this great line in, forgive me, the Lord of the Rings. 
where Gimli the dwarf, is, there's this blessing spoken over him by Galadriel. She says, your hands are going to flow with gold, and yet it will not own your heart. That's the idea. You know anybody who has a simple heart? They seek first the kingdom of God, and therefore their possessions don't own them. Is it even possible to live like this? As we begin to seek first the kingdom of God, our minds are renewed and we begin to recognize that all of life is a gift, that all we have is ultimately God's to care for and ours to share with others. There's more than enough in the kingdom of God. We're safe. That's why the story of Zacchaeus is so particularly astounding because he's a rich man, a tax collector, who meets the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house. And the evidence of it is he's paying back people that he's frauded, embezzled money from. He's paying back with interest three, four times what was taken. Salvation has come to this house. So we seek first the kingdom of God. We begin to see there's more than enough to go around, that all of life is a gift, that this gift has been given by God who loves me and I'm stewarding it, and there's more than enough to share. As we get ready to receive Holy Communion today and we, we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, I love this cross that Joe made behind me. We remember how our master and our teacher is one who for our sakes became poor, who did not regard equality with God and the privilege that came with that as something to be exploited, but rather made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One way of reading it is, Scaling that mountain of self-achievement, building our own empire. And then there's the Philippians 2 way of reading it, which is this descent into surrender. I can do all of this, plunge even into the valleys of life through him who gives me strength. You're safe in the kingdom of God. God has generously provided for all that we need. Therefore, Jesus offers us the invitation to get off of the crazy train, to disavow our allegiance to the kingdom of comfort, and to pledge our allegiance anew to the Lord Jesus and to his kingdom, to seek it first, his righteousness, and trust that all these other things are going to be given to us as well. If you are anxious, if you are restless, if you are discontent, if you are on the crazy train of accumulation, there is a stop here at the table today. You can stop and you can get off. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may the evidence of the move of your Holy Spirit in our church be people who renounce the claim of wealth on their hearts and on mine. May the evidence of the move of your Spirit uh, be seen in our wonder being turned down. And we find ourselves disinterested with more stuff, especially more stuff just to impress others. Lord, I don't intend any shame to myself or to anyone else. Uh, may, may this message be a message of liberty 
We can be free of the trap that everyone else is in. We can live simply and lightly and open-handedly. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, make us like you, with open hands, offered your life for the life of the world. As we come with open hands, may we cling tightly to the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. May it be our strength, our sustenance, our hope. Remind our hearts that we can do all this in trusting our resources, our security to you who give us strength. So we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.